Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, stay with us as the suns get set to shine. Mary, the guy heard. Here's the jump shot. Comes to Marley. A long three. He got it. He got it. Into Booker. Here's the three. Suzanne! Sir Charles. And he flies in for a wham, bam, slam. Bravo time. He got it. Seven Seconds or Less, a podcast about the NBA and the Phoenix Suns. My name is Max McCauley, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host. His name is David Nash. David, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing all right, Max. A little under weather this morning, but always excited to jump on a podcast with you and our guest this week. So, ready to get right into it. I think we've got a pod topic that's right in his wheelhouse, I think, for this one. Yep, appreciate you pushing through for this one because it's going to be good. Uh, our guest is perhaps the number one non-Suns fan, Mikel Bridges fan, there is. <laughs> uh, he is the co-founder of The Stepping, a former consultant for the Phoenix Suns, and the godfather of draft Twitter. It's his third appearance, and it's Cole Zwicker. Cole, how you doing, man? Doing well. I'm kind of blushing after this third appearance here, and I think when you have Mikhail, that's like the bat signal for me. So whenever somebody <laughs> talks about him, I, I just suddenly emerge there. <laughs> yeah, we were like, oh man, should we really ask Cole back this soon? We don't want to, you know, waste his time or anything like that. But then like, it's Mikhail Bridges. He's gonna want to come. Exactly. So anyway, this is continuing our position preview series. We're doing small forwards. So that's Mikhail. It's Kelly Oubre, and to a lesser extent, Cam Johnson. We'll talk about him at the end. Uh, and we're also going to get into some future-looking team-building stuff because uh, we have Cole Zwicker here, and we're obligated to do so. But first, David, how about a little bit of a recap? Well, the schedule came out, as we mentioned last week, Max, but not much to report on there. The Suns' schedule is rated one of the hardest in terms of, I believe, travel and strength of schedule, but that's what happens when you're as bad as the Suns and also in the Western Conference, Max. There was also the... Terry Rozier news, which Max, you and I will likely touch on a little bit more in our point guard episode, which we haven't done yet. But with the lack of news again this week, I thought we'd use that Rozier story. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, there was a, a story about Rozier likely accepting a deal from the Suns before Michael Jordan intervened. So I thought we'd play a little game here quickly off the top if both of you are keen. And that's which free agent signing would you save from this summer from signing with one team and potentially sign someone else? I'm going to go first and then Max and we'll have Cole go last to give him some time to think on this. But straight off the bat, Max, mine, a uh, little bit of hindsight here with the boogie news going down, but with him signing for $3.5 million with the Lakers, I thought maybe, you know, AD doesn't want to play the centre uh, they're going to have enough reliance on some unhealthy bodies already. So they probably could have gone with a guy like Willie Coley-Stein at the Lakers to play center instead of Boogie coming off numerous injuries. And now that one's come back to bite them, Max. It has. And now it looks like they're turning into Dwight Howard. And uh, I think <laughs> I'd rather have Willie Coley-Stein than Dwight Howard at this point in his career. Uh, my answer is something that actually kind of almost happened, and that's the Boston Celtics retaining Al Horford instead of getting Enos Cantor. Uh, mm-hmm. Cap-wise, it would have been really difficult to pull off, but it was possible. And I would have loved to see it just because I think the ultimate chemistry experiment would have been just to replace Kyrie Irving with Kemba on last year's Celtics team and just see what happens. 
Uh, also, they can balance out the East a little bit more. It'd be fun to have like a three-headed Boston, Philadelphia, uh, and who's the team? Oh, Milwaukee uh, monster rather than just Milwaukee and uh, Philadelphia. So that'd be mine. I, I like mean, it. So to can you rephrase the question really quick or restate the question? Saving a team from signing a free agent that they eventually sign this summer and instead going with someone else. So like the Suns, apparently almost signed Terry Rozier and then Michael Jordan intervened. So they flipped to Ricky Rubio, which I think most people listening would think is a better case for the Phoenix Suns. So do you have an example like that for us, Cole? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this one's real easy. Everything the Knicks did, I wouldn't do. And I would instead <laughs> take like the Harkless trade in. I would get a first round pick for that. I'd operate that way and try to get draft capital. I mean, some of the signings they made, like Bullock, for example, who um, he reneged on his deal due to health considerations. So they got him for a more accurate number. But I would not have paid Bobby Portis, Julius Randle, and just kind of so much money into fours and fives like Todd Gibson. I would have utilized that cap space in superior fashion. Yeah, and the way they justify it is by saying these are short-term deals with team options. But like, you're not—you don't get any value out of it, though. You're just like spending cash space to spend it and sitting on it for a couple of years. It's very odd to me. Exactly right. I think there's an opportunity cost to that. It's not just about yeah, you signed essentially one-year deals on one plus ones. It's what did you sacrifice as an opportunity cost to do that? And let's say they could have gotten the Harkless, um, Harkless superior player than those guys. I think he would have had value in like a secondary trade as well. They could have traded him again and not getting a pick. I just think when you're the Knicks and you really need assets, and their whole thing was we already have a ton of draft picks, we don't need them. You can always use them. You can always use extra bites at the apple when you are in that state as a franchise. Yeah, and even if you don't want to draft more players, draft picks are worth things. You can trade them for other things. So it's, it's kind of a silly yeah, thing exactly. to say. Uh, well, let's go ahead and move on to our small forward preview here. Uh, Cole, let's start by getting your take on the signing of Kelly Oubre. I don't know if I know where you stand on this one. I know, I know you're a little bit lower on him than most, at least most Suns fans. Uh, the contract he ended up getting was interesting. It was two years, $30 million, declining from the first year to the second year. What do you think about what the Suns did there, and what do you think about it for Kelly, too? I don't really mind it that much. I do think I, I, I'm looking at how this contract and how Ubre adds value to the team. They do need kind of a wing guy who can create his own shot. We've talked about that in the past. So I think he affords this team that ability. And that's something that really only Booker gives them right now. Mikhail and Cam Johnson are more kind of filling the gaps, off ball wings and shooter types. So I think from that standpoint, if you're trying to compete and that's what the Suns are trying to do is build a more competitive roster short term. I'm not as high on him as far as contributing to winning, but I do think he has a skill set that the Suns can't really replace from that small forward slash power forward position. So at two years, it's not a crippling deal. I don't think he's an incredible value at this number. I think it's fine. Like if you can't really trade Kelly Oubre making this amount for like a, a nice return. Like I don't think him in isolation is going to get you that. But I do think it's it's trade. It's a contract you can potentially aggregate down the road if you uh, find a deal you like. And in the interim, he's at least providing a skill set that is valuable to this team. Yeah, there's not a lot of risk to it, right? Because if, even if it's a complete disaster, it's off your books at the end of next season. I mean, this season is basically a wash. They just use you know his bird rights to go over the cap. So the opportunity cost is pretty low. But at the same time, and David, I'll ask you about this because I actually uh, we haven't talked about this very much before, but. One, I guess, argument against this deal is that, say, Kelly Uber really exceeds uh, where he's been so far and, and plays like a, you know, a max player even, you don't really give yourself a lot of upside with this deal. It kind of similar to the next thing. It's like, if you only have a two-year deal and somebody really exceeds his value, you're going to have to repay him in just a couple of years. Yeah, I think we touched on it very briefly uh, in the initial reaction to the deal. Unless he's 
playing at a level where that kind of $21 million cap hold actually comes into play and you can use his bird rights again to go over the cap. The Suns do hamstring themselves a little bit uh, if he really plays up to his potential here and and then have to re-sign him in two years' time. And, you know, we're going to get into it, obviously, with Mikhail in the wings, uh, no pun intended, and also Cam Johnson as well. It, it is an interesting scenario, but, you know, the deal was perfect for the Suns uh, in the position that they were in, but it's also a large reason why I have him starting at the moment. And I'm kind of tossing and turning on this, but I'm not sure if it's kind of the best fit for the Suns going forward. And and Monty has said it's going to be an open spot, but how much that we can actually trust and, and see it play out that way, I'm not too sure. But we should probably get Cole's thoughts on this, Max. You know, we've talked about the improved three-point shot and, and probably shot selection overall and also Kelly's tunnel vision in, in previous episodes. But Cole, you know, putting your love for Bridges aside and him probably starting for this team, what, what does Kelly have to come back with? What does he have to improve on to kind of validate taking that starting small forward spot over a guy like Mikael Bridges. It's interesting for me what is realistic to expect versus what is ideal to expect. I yeah. think you would rather you would, you'd like to see him come back and be more focused consistently on defense, especially off the ball and being engaged that way. The Suns could really utilize or really use that level of effort and not lapsing so much off the ball. I mean, this guy has great tools. I mean, Uber can switch. Mm-hmm. He's got good range. He's got great length. So I think he could be an asset, but I, I don't really know if that's realistic to expect him to improve demonstrably as far as team defense awareness. So I think for a scheme like switching, he's going to be able to handle that. I'm not worried about that. And then offensively, the consistency of the shooting would be great. I mean, they need that consistent threat off the catch. We'll see how much he's utilized off movement at all. And I think from yep. a decision-making standpoint, when he can get to the lane because his handle's good in isolation, like he can create his own shot and he's aggressive. I think that's something that's really valuable. He has to keep that. I don't want him to start deferring a bunch because part of his game is being aggressive as a slasher. Ideally, you'd like to see him expand as a passer, be able to make reads when he draws two guys. Can you make the right play? I, I don't know how much confidence I have in that occurring and that's kind of why I'm a little lower on Kelly overall as far as his ability to contribute to winning and we're going to see I mean we're going to see if he can develop you know superior instincts this is kind of why I've seen him as a rotation guy and I think the point you guys made about contracts is really fascinating as far as is this contract creating value like if he blows up uh, you're going to have to resign him to a bigger number but I think if in my case, I don't see him as likely to do that. And I'm not even sure if he's that valuable to winning. So if he was, I would say, you know, for your contract, try to lock him in for value long-term and see if you can get surplus value on that contract. I don't know if that's going to be the case. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, the blow-up thing is, it's a very low likelihood. I'm talking, you know, he becomes a star, which I think it's not impossible with him. Just some of the things you described about him, some of his tools are really special for his size. I would say, especially, that you know, he's a really big wingspan. His handle's pretty good. He's a fluid athlete. Uh, you could see a, a world where he is a star, but like you said, the decision-making has to get a lot better, uh, and then obviously the shooting. But I want to move on real quick to Mikael Bridges. Uh, Cole, you know, we've already alluded to the fact that you are one of his biggest fans. Uh, in order for us to get into a nice Mikael Ubre comparison, how about give you a rundown of like where you see Mikael Bridges now as a player? Yeah, I just think when you compare those two players, Mikael's intelligence pops at a much higher level. He's a much more cerebral instinctual defensive player very smart i thought he was honestly probably the smartest player on the suns last year rubio mm-hmm. probably is now as far as just overall court awareness mikhail's really underrated though as far as his team defense and offensively his decision making i thought was really mm-hmm. spectacular he's not only unselfish but he makes the right read i think he's really underrated as a passer 
it all comes down to the jump shot, though, like we've talked about in the past. So the tinkering with release speed is going to put me in my grave early. It's just absolutely, <laughs> I, I, I have no idea why he's doing this. Ugh. But you'd like, I mean, this is a guy who, when you run his college stats, when you watch him at Nova, he was like on the same, he was like a 90% free throw shooter at times. He was on a list if you sorted by shooting as far as like three point attempt rate, like free throw percentage, like Kyle Corver would be like the only other guy in that list. Like we're talking about a guy who I think has elite level touch. He can shoot off motion. I thought last year he flashed more off the dribble. And I think they can utilize him a little bit more that way as far as on downscreen curls. He can shoot off the dribble over the top of smaller defenders, got that really high release point. So I do trust his touch. I think his touch and shooting capacity has higher upside than someone like Ubre. His handle is going to limit him just because he's not very strong there as far as dribbling in traffic. He's not good at finishing through contact, which is something that Ubre again is a lot stronger at. So they're very different players. Like Mikhail has Ubre, I think, on shooting upside overall team impact contributing to winning and uber is more of like an isolation score slash a guy who can switch and mikhail's not as strong there either as far as switching and really guarding stronger players so i don't know if i can imagine two like more different kinds of players which is kind of fascinating yeah it is uh and just to buttress your point on mikhail bridges the, the intelligence of his, of his game he takes so little off the table because of how smart he is shoots 86 percent of his shots either at the rim or from three like he just does not waste uh, motion in the mid range at all. Usage is very low, but as you mentioned, he distributes really well in that usage. I think he has like a 78th percentile assisted usage. So, like, the, the guy just makes good decisions constantly. The problem is, you know, I guess, like, the real question with his development to a potential star or whatever is that does he really bring a lot to the table? You know what I mean? Like, his usage is so low that he kind of gets lost out there sometimes. He's much more of a complimentary player at this time. You know, he's not really prolific in any stat other than seals, which he's quite prolific in. So I guess the question is going to kind of be with him. Uh, what is the upside? He's, I, I think he'd be, you know, a great player on the Warriors today. He'd be an awesome guy for them to have. But is he ever going to be like one of your two or three best players, I guess, is my question with him. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely fair. That's kind of what he is. He's a guy who fills in the gaps and makes your team better. He's an impact guy. So if you look historically, guys on winning teams, there, there are certain kinds of archetypes. He's the closest guy I've seen to Shane Battier. He's mm. not quite Shane Battier as far as an on-ball defender because Shane was like all-time there. I, I think Mikhail's shot is a little bit more versatile. He can do a little bit more. Battier is more of just a catch-and-shoot guy, but made outstanding decisions. And was just one of those guys where he never scored a lot of points. He never, like, You never really saw his impact in the box score. And you don't really with McHale either. But I do think, again, like those kinds of guys just fit really easily into winning. And that's kind of the things I juggle on the draft all the time as far as do you take a guy who's going to be a 20 and 10 guy, but take something off the table as it pertains to winning? Or do you favor McHale, who, like you know, it doesn't have really any discernible weakness for his role. And I do think brings like a lot of hidden impact value. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, let's transition into uh, Kelly Oubre versus McHale Bridges on this team. David, We'll start with you. You posted some stuff on our podcast Twitter account yesterday about those two playing together. Do you want to give us a quick rundown of what you see as the fit between those guys, both on the floor together, and also, I guess, who you think makes more sense uh, in the you know in the closing lineup or starting lineup? Yeah, Cole's touched on it a lot already. It's like you can't get two more contrasting players here between Ubre and Bridges, and that kind of lent me in the direction of you know on the back of our pal forward. Uh, episode last week where we ended up being not all that positive about Sharic, particularly if he comes back as the chubby version of himself <laughs> next season. So I started to go down a rabbit hole of, you know, how much can we expect Ubre and Bridges to play together? I, I found a couple of things here, you know, the only two three-man combos 
last year that had positive net ratings per 100 possessions were Aiton Booker and Oubre at plus 1.7 and Booker Bridges and Oubre at plus 1.6. And three of the four best two-man combos included Oubre as well. Ironically, the, the top one and the last one of the four there was Bridges and TJ Warren at minus 2.2 points per 100 possessions in 721 minutes, actually. But, you know, all of Phoenix's wins last season after Oubre joined, Mikhail and Oubre were both in the top five of minutes played. So, you know, I'm not sure whether it really matters who starts here, Max, because I think a lot of the time both of them are going to be ending. And, you know, as you said, those videos that I posted with a Golden State win, which might have been the, the best win of the lot, from last season and both of those guys were big on both ends in that game they kind of both played as free safeties on defense i highlighted a couple of videos there um i think you know we've touched on it with cole before there's no better position for mikhail bridges to to play than as a free safety in in the defense and they're going to be asking him to do a hell of a lot on defense this year with the way that they've structured up but i kind of like the look between the both of them out on the floor together uh and then you know who starts? I'm not really sure it matters. I think Cole's touched on this before, maybe with the locked-on guys. I'm far less worried about Mikhail coming off the bench because I just don't think he gives a shit. I'm pretty sure I've mentioned that before as well, Max. But, you know, with the contract, even though Monty has said it's open, I, I do expect that Ubre falls into that starting position. But, you know, I kind of need to see it play out. I'm not all that worried about it because I really expect Mikhail to play himself onto the floor in those kind of high leverage situations, of which hopefully Phoenix are in a hell of a lot more of those next season, Max. So, Cole, let's, since we all agree that the star of who starts doesn't matter as much, let's talk about closing lineup. I, I think Mikhail Bridges and Kelly Oubre are both in the top five best players on the Phoenix Suns. It's you, I think you face some issues if you if you play at the same time together because you're not going to have a real power forward out there. And if Aiton is the same guy he was last season, you're going to have some trouble depending on the interior probably. But what do you think? Do you think that the Suns can close with, say, Rubio, Booker, Mikel, Oubre, and Aiton and be successful that way? I do. And I have a question for you guys. I, I wrote this down just because I don't think I mentioned this on lockdown and I was kind of pissed off at myself. <laughs> but so I think most people expect Sarge to start at the four just because he's the most traditional four, right? Yeah. Yeah. What do you guys think about kind of mixing and matching that? I know like a lot of teams don't do this for synergistic purposes because you don't want to mix and match your starters. But like for me, if you play against Detroit, for example, it would make more sense to start someone like Sarich, who's more of a power player who could guard Blake Griffin. But if you play the, the Celtics, for example, and they're starting Gordon Hayward or Jason Tatum at the four, wouldn't it just make more sense to, to play Ubre at the four there and have McHale starting at the three? So I think there's some diversity potential here. Like there's four guys... I think there's four guys that are locked in to start. I think Uber is going to start over Mikhail, you know, obviously Rubio, Booker, and Aiton. It's kind of what happens with that fifth spot. And before I was, I think most people were viewing it through the prism of either Ubre or Mikhail. I'm kind of more curious now if it's going to be more between like Mikhail and potentially Saric. Yeah, I think you identified a really interesting uh, thing there, the pros and cons, because I think you're right. I think um, it makes a lot of sense to be matchup dependent with the starters and mix it around a little bit, just the way the Suns roster uh, has shaken out. It just That kind of makes the most sense uh, from an intellectual point of view. But I think you also identified the con there, which is the Suns over the past three seasons have just been in and out with all their starters all over the place, sometimes due to injury, oftentimes just due to players not performing. And I think a big uh, theme of this season we're going to see is stability. 
they just really are going to want to put the same lineups out there for you know, a couple months straight because they just haven't done that. And this team just needs to be more consistent, needs to bring it every night. And I think part of that will probably be trying to lock in on one starting unit. So it, it surprised me if they varied that from game to game. It wouldn't surprise me if Sarge just, you know, just outplayed and they eventually make a switch because of that. But I think any switch they make would be uh, indefinite. What do, you, what do you think, David? Yeah, I'm pretty much in agreement with you on that. I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of chopping and changing starting lineups in general anyway. Obviously, as you get into the playoffs and backs against the wall, you've got to make some adjustments there. But you know, I'd rather see the Suns go in with whatever starting five they think is the better one to go with. And then obviously in-game adjustments, Cole, is probably where you start to tinker things around a little bit based on who you're playing and, and who's playing well. And, and Max and I have discussed this already quite a bit is, you know, thankfully the Suns are going to have more pieces to play with finally. And Monty's going to have more than say Igor did last year. So yeah, I, I like the point. I think, you know, Monty said it, they're going to roll the boy, ball out at training camp. And I think you you're on the, the money there is it, it may actually come down to Mikhail versus Sharich versus, you know, actually thinking about Ubre and Bridges here. And I think that's the convo we're getting into here is that uh, Ubre and Bridges might actually be the eventual starters. And that may be the, the best way for this team going forward. Yeah, I think there's validity to that, honestly, because you talk about defensive scheme and what makes the most sense for Phoenix to do. Like, I don't think Sarch is some kind of dynamic you know, rim protector. I mean, he's a good team defender, but like he can get to the spots. He can't always alter. He's not like a dynamic leaper. Of course, he's not going to be that kind of like backline guy who's high level, like a Draymond, clearly not that because he doesn't have the length or any of that. But like, so if you played eight and more and you got more aggressive with him and pick and roll coverage and you had Sarich as the backline guy, I don't know if he'd actually even do a better job at that than someone like Mikhail or Oubre just because their length, they have much better mobility. So stylistically, it's really fascinating because what makes the most sense It's to switch. And if you, you have Rubio, you have Booker, you have a, like bigger guards, you have those really switchable like four, like three, four guys, Aiton can switch. Uh, that makes the most sense to me from a defensive standpoint. And I think we're going to see that, of course, at the end of games. Like you guys noted, getting back to the original question was, does that lineup make sense? I think it makes the most sense on this roster for them to get to that eventually. It's just a question of when they get to it and what situations. And one of the elephants in the room here is that, you know, a lot of this depends on what DeAndre Aiton is next year. If that guy's a crazy, you know, not probably not going to be a crazy rib protector, but if he's at least, you know, he's improved to the point where he's adequate for a starting center, it changes a lot of what you can do. You can get away with playing smaller guys around him. I agree with you. I mean, Sarge is not an incredible rim protector, quite the opposite, but I think he at least, as you even mentioned, gets in the way a little bit more than a guy like Ubre. Kellen Olsen makes this point a lot. Ubre just, he gets, he just makes lapses on defense all the time. You know what I mean? Like he can be really good at times when he's, when he's locked in, he's good, but he just, he will just get lost on that end. And if, if Aiton's doing the same thing at the last season where he's also getting lost constantly, they, they just need somebody. I, for example, when they put in Dragon Bender, of all people, at the end of last year, it actually helped them. <laughs> Dragon Bender's terrible. He just wasn't going to the right places, and that was an upgrade. So they may find themselves needing to do that, depending on where Aiton is. Yeah, I think that's a great point and something that's, again, why I'm not as high on Ubre because of those inconsistent lapses. I just think from a stylistic standpoint, there's not like a perfect – fit here like if mm-hmm. if Sarge was like uber athletic and he could be like that rim protector it would make you know a world of difference here I think that would be a pretty easy decision but since you're juggling and you're always gaining some sort of trade-off and that's the case with most lineups honestly there's like no perfect lineup but you're always going to juggle that and that's why I think like based on situation 
it is kind of fascinating to entertain. But I think your point about Aiden also is spot on. Like a lot of this is tied to what kind of second year leap we see from him. This is one of those moments where I'm pinching myself and making myself not talk about Brandon Clark. Uh, David, <laughs> anything else on this or do you want to move to Did You Know? Uh, I think we should just finally touch on, I think, with the Aiton stuff, obviously not going to go into it too much, but you know, I love that that's why Igor kind of threw him in the deep end there. For the, you know, It was a big development first year, and he took his lumps in a lot of situations. But you know, if we do see a massive leap from Aiton as both a rebounder and rim protector next year, then you know you can start to think about playing a you know three four combo of Ubre and Bridges, and you know Igor did a great job with Kelly as well. I thought, which was probably the last thing I wanted to touch on in this section match, just not mentioned enough. I think post All Star as a starter, it was only twelve games, but you know Kelly was taking fifty percent of his shots at the rim and shooting sixty percent on those kind of coming off curls downhill. You mentioned Dragon Bender. He was the guy screening and popping in a lot of those situations. So all of a sudden that might be Sharich instead. And that's where you get into, again, another conversation is, is Ubre going to be better off doing that again with the starters with more threats, or is he going to be better as like the, I guess the guy in the second unit with more shooters and stuff around him, you know, we've noted his passing isn't great. So is the shooters around him actually going to be that effective if he can't hit them? And that's where I get back to, I guess, leaning with him at least starting until Mikel Bridges shows a little bit more from uh, from his game, I suppose, which we're going to get into a little bit later, Max. So uh, I'll jump into Did You Know now if you're good for me to do so. Let's do it. Well, Max, with Cole joining us, I thought I'd go a small forward flavor with a Seattle Supersonics twist for this week's Did You Know? So, guys, did you know, the, <laughs> did you know the Suns played the Sonics in game one of the 07-08 season, also known as the last season the Sonics played in the NBA? It was a 106-99 win for the Suns with 23 points for Stat and 12 assists for Nash. Cole, I know you've told me before you're a Sonics man when they were around. What was the feeling like around that last season in the league? Yeah, I was actually an undergrad in California for most of that, but it was just, it was brutal because it was inevitable. I mean, if people want to see like the circumstance, Sonics Gate, watch that film. It really outlines like the politics behind that. The fanship, yep. I think the fans got dumped on a little bit too much as far as attendance. That wasn't really the case. It was, people were still going to games. It was just the writing was on the wall. At that point, everybody knew, of course, it was inevitable they were leaving, but uh, it, it was, it's brutal, man, to lose a team. I can't really even describe the feeling just because it's something that's incredibly atypical and it, uh, it it's really tough. Yep, Sonic's Gate is uh, one of my favorite documentaries, so a particularly basketball one. So everyone listening should go and find that, as Cole mentioned. But now, weirdly, Max, I could have ended up a Seattle fan. I think most people listening know how I became a Suns fan now, but it was a choice between three, the Suns and Barkley, the Hornets with Morning, Johnson and Muggsy, and the Sonics led by Peyton and Kemp from those old VHS tapes I had lying around to watch. But funnily enough, even with the depressing last few years, I might have actually still made the best choice for the future with the Phoenix Suns. But back to the Sonics theme to Did You Know Now, Cole, there was quite a famous small forward starting on that 07-08 team. But Basketball Reference actually had him listed as the two guard in that lineup. Which two players... Had the 82 starts at small forward between them, Cole? 
Oh man, that I should definitely know this off the top of my head. I do remember it's got to be Jeff Green, right? He started fifty-two, and a lesser name started thirty-one. I remember Durant playing the two because everybody's really pissed off about it. They're like, how is this guy a two guard? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I can't, um, can't remember. You're going to have to tell me. It was Damian Wilkins starting uh, 31 games last in that season. Sorry. But Max, you aren't getting off easy here either. The 2007-08 season, which player started the most games at small forward for the Suns in that season? Oh, seven. So was that the season we traded for Shaq? We it might is, be right? getting into that. Yep. Uh, so it was either Marion, but they traded him. So maybe it's Hill. It was, of course, Grant Hill, who played uh, 70 games in the purple and orange that year and started in 68 of them. But as our good friend Scott Howard brought up earlier this week, and you just alluded to, Max, the Suns essentially had two versatile small forwards in their starting lineup early in the season before pulling the trigger on the Marion for Shaq trade at 34 wins and 14 losses on the season. Shaquille O'Neal was traded to the Suns on Feb 6, 2008 for Marcus Banks and Sean Marion. The Suns played that night, but in true Did You Know fashion, the first game they played post-trade was again against the Seattle Supersonics. This time it was a 103-99 win for the Suns with Stat amassing 33-10 before the big Shaqtis joined the team to play, which wouldn't for another four games and started against the Lakers. So guys, Shaq and the Suns would only play the Sonics one time in that final year for them. Another win for the Suns, 110-98 to with only nine points for O'Neal on March 19. But now I want to quickly look at some links between that final Sonics team and the current Suns, Max. The Sonics won 20 games in 07-08 before moving to OKC, just one more than the Suns managed last season. Their coach, PJ Carlissimo, lasted a little bit longer than Igor Kokoskov with the 20-win season his first and getting 13 more games the following season before getting fired for a 1-12 and start. So that may have happened to Igor again next season if he wasn't fired already. The starting point guard on that team, Max, was none other than recent ex-Suns coach Earl Watson, and a 35-year-old Kurt Thomas also started 39 of his 42 games with the Sonics that season. Which brings me to another little fun fact I found while looking into this. Much like the 18-19 Suns, who had a mini 6-6 six and six run with Tyler, Booker, Oubre, Ayton, and Bridges leading the way, the Sonics had a starting lineup of Watson, Durant, Wilcox, Wilkins, and Kurt Thomas that was 7-7 seven and seven in a 20-win season. My favorite starting lineup, though, which was the opposite of that, Cole, was Watson, Durant, Jeff Green, Nick Collison, and Kurt Thomas, which went 0-10 and 10 during that same season. Kill but, to now, end... <laughs> <laughs> but to end here, guys, we're talking all things small forward, Sonics, and Suns, so it's time to put you both on the spot with one final quiz. How many of the six small forwards who played for the Suns and Sonics can you name between you? I'm going to set the over-under here at one, to be honest. So let me know if you can get one or two, guys. Um... <laughs> I'm not sure if this is the right year, but Jellabel, is that right? 
Mikhail, something like that? I, th- I feel like he was a wing at some point for the Sonics. No. So we're going in alphabetical order here. I'll let you off the hook. Small forwards <laughs> have played for both the Suns and the Sonics. Mike Bantam, a small forward, power forward combo who started with Phoenix in 73 and played just 44 games with Seattle in 76. Eddie Johnson is probably the most famous of them, a shooting guard small forward combo who was traded from Phoenix to Seattle for another small forward that's on this list. Don McLean, a power forward small forward combo who played 17 games with Seattle in 99 and 16 games with the Suns in 2000. Xavier McDaniel, a small forward power forward combo who was the one who went the other way in the Eddie Johnson trade and the only all-star of this whole group. Dick Snyder, a shooting guard small forward combo who was traded from the Suns to the Sonics in 69. And Alex Stiverens, a small forward power forward combo who played 13 of his total 22 games with the Suns and Sonics. But Max, you might have picked up a little theme there that all six of those guys were actually combos who didn't exclusively play the small forward position, which is a nice way to end and talk about a couple of guys who might be the future at small forward, but also other positions for the Suns. David, thank you for that especially impossible, did you know? Uh, <laughs> that was a dirty I, trick. <laughs> was a dirty trick. I, uh, I do want to point out, I don't know if I've ever said this in the podcast before. I know I have not told Cole this, but I was a Sonics fan when I was a little kid. Whoa. Uh, and uh, when, the, when the Kemp and Peyton Sonics lost to the Bulls in 96, I actually cried. Uh, that so was a big I. moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> we were crying at the same time, probably cool. Uh, but anyway, that's that's a little did you know fact for you there. But uh, I want to move on to, as you said, with Mikel Bridges. I like to do things that make Suns fans feel good about themselves. And I think this next little game we're going to play here qualifies. We're going to do a lightning round. Of, Would you rather have Mikel Bridges or the following wings who are all drafted in the lottery from 2014 through 2018? Ooh, I like it. Quick caveat, I only counted true wings. I didn't count Luke and Ben Simmons, for example, because they're you know they're not really wings, they're more guards. Uh, and then I also didn't count guys like Jabari Parker and Aaron Gordon, who kind of came into the league as wigs, but that transformed into bigs. Uh, so these are only like true wings that I counted. And um, you didn't so- count Luca and Simmons, you know, keeping the theme of feeling good about ourselves, right, Max? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but there's also a lot of guys I didn't include, like Jabari Parker, who I could have, would have made us feel good about ourselves also. So it went both ways. But uh, so I'll read them off. Uh, we'll have Cole go first, and then David. Just say yes or no. You'd rather have this guy, or just say you'd rather have McKellar or this guy. Okay. First one: Andrew Wiggins. McHale. McHale. Doug McDermott. M- uh, McHale. <laughs> <laughs> Ditto. T.J. Warren. McHale. Ditto. Mario Hazonia. Hazonia, no, I'm just kidding, Mikhail. <laughs> <laughs> Interested to see how he goes on the Blazers this year, but definitely Mikhail. Stanley Johnson. Mikhail. Another one I'm interested to see in another situation, but always Bridges. Justice Winslow. Ooh, I love this one. Um, I would still take Mikhail just with his ease of fit, but I think Winslow's actually kind of underrated. Yeah, particularly if they can get Dragic or someone out of Miami and, and put the ball in his hands a little bit more. But yeah, I'm going Mikhail, Max. Brandon Ingram. Another great one. Can I factor in contracts? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, because I know how it goes. Yes. M- Mikhail. 
Yeah, and health, I guess, to double down on that point from Cole. Um, but yeah, I am I'm higher on Ingram than than most probably Suns fans, but I'll stick with Mikhail. Here's another factory in contract. Jalen Brown. Mikhail. Yeah, I'm I'm not a Brown fan. I can understand why people are, but you know, the Homer in me staying with Bridges, Max. Torian Prince. Uh definitely Mikhail. I love Torian Prince coming out of college, but Mikhail Bridges. Jason Tatum. All right. I got, I got to go Tatum. <laughs> that would just be too much. People would never respect what I say again if I said the game here. The, the bat signal's just going off right now. Uh, yeah. Got to go Jason Tatum, Max. Josh Jackson. Mikhail. <laughs> <laughs> We have to insert a crickets effect, I think, right there, Max. But yeah, bridges Kevin, for me. Kevin Knox, uh, Mikhail. Yep, same. Miles Bridges, Mikhail. Yep, same for me. Last but not least, possibly least, Michael Porter Jr. Oh, who the hell knows? So Mikhail. <laughs> <laughs> I was super, super low on Michael Porter Jr. and kind of bummed that, uh, I mean, for him, obviously, the injuries, but wanted to really see how he translated fully healthy into the NBA. But uh, I am going Mikael Bridges, and I believe that means I just copied Cole the whole way through. And I had the same answers as you guys. I thought about it in the round, <laughs> uh, but I ultimately Mikael. And I think my point here is that you know, that's every single wing, true wing Jeff in the lottery. True wings are hard to find, and they often don't come from the top of the draft. So I think we should be pretty excited that Mikel played as well as he did. It's pretty rare for a guy drafted in the lottery to be a wing to actually succeed. What do you think about that, Cole? No, I think that's a great point. And that's why I thought Mikhail was underrated in the draft because I feel like the worst, the thing everybody's worst at in the draft is contextualizing information mm -hmm. and realizing things of how rare Mikhail actually is. Maybe the upside isn't there as far as like star caliber player, but guys like him don't come around you know, every day, like what he does, what he brings to the table. So I'm glad you hit on that. So let's get into what exactly his possible high outcome could be or low outcome. Cole, we want to do something we did similar to last week where we talked about what the best possible outcome for Booker is, also medium and low outcome. Let's get from you what Mikel's, let's put it like 20%, 50%, and 90% outcomes would be. So like a pretty bad outcome for where Mikel could be, a, a you know a medium one, and then like one of his best possible outcomes. What do those worlds look like to you? I think a bad outcome would be what we saw last year. Not that he was bad, but if he continues mm -hmm. the shot inconsistency and he's not a dynamic shooter, he's more of just an average shooter. And then you don't get you know the off movement gravity. He's not bringing you anything else. So he, he really has to shoot. That's the thing with Mikhail. So it, it, I think last year again, if he doesn't get his mechanics right then that's the bad outcome. I think the median outcome is we see a little bit more improvement as a movement shooter. We see consistency. He gets to like 37, 38% on volume from three. The team defense is always going to be there. I think that the high, high outcome, we're talking 90%. We start to see something like Chris Middleton who can shoot better off movement, but also shoot off the dribble and like be that kind of shot creator one-on-one. -on -one. Doesn't have Middleton's handle, but just kind of mirroring that to an extent as far as a one-on-one -on -one kind of shoot over the top guy. And he adds strength, so he gets more functional there as far as switching on defense. So I, I would say that is more of a higher end outcome. I'm not sure how much strength and girth he can actually put on, but I think his upside, if we're talking you know, elite upside, is tied a little bit to his shot-making ability.
Mm-hmm. And how about his passing too? Because I, I agree, like the handle is not Chris Middleton. Maybe he can tighten it up. We'll see. But I do think Mikel is a better natural playmaker than Chris Middleton is. So do you think that facet of his game could be reached in sort of a 90 percentile plus outcome? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that I'm not sure if he's going to improve. Mikhail's going to improve that much with his passing. It's already very good. I already said it. Like his decision making mm-hmm. is outstanding. I think a lot of it is tied to the handle. If if you're really talking about his passing and becoming, you know, really elevated, because then you start to get into can he draw two guys? Can he post up and draw a double team and pass out of that? I think that's more tied to his self creation gravity than it is his natural, you know, instincts. I, I definitely agree though. He's he's a much better natural passer than Middleton is. So, David, let's imagine that Mikel gets to one of these higher-end outcomes. Let's also assume Aiton is at least like a starting quality NBA center and that Booker keeps on the path he's currently on. Mm-hmm. In that scenario, what player types would you be looking uh, forward to build around those two? Uh, maybe use some current players as examples. We'll start with you on this one, then we'll go to uh, Cole and then me. Yeah, you did warn me about this. So I, I kind of put some thought into it and can uh, give Cole a little bit more time to think about it. But... You know, I I looked at, I guess, guys in the NBA right now, but with kind of some twists here, Max. So uh, for power forward, I kind of went a young Paul Millsap, but with the, the older Paul Millsap kind of extension out to the three-point line. You know, he's not an amazing three-point shooter, but he definitely added that to his game uh, as he went on playing with Al Horford and then obviously Nikola Jokic at the moment uh, with the Nuggets. So, uh, you know, that's the kind of power forward next to Aiton that I'd love. You know, you're kind of getting into a point here where you, you need three positive defenders with Book and Aiton if they're going to be your one-two combo. And, you know, Millsap can stretch, as I said. Uh, you know, he can guard and switch onto some fives. He's thick enough to, to battle most fives down low. And, you know, his passing uh, as a big-to-big combo with Aiton as well would be ideal. And then at point guard, I went with a... Uh, older, bulkier version of SGA, which is quite mm. interesting when you get into the the SGA Bridges stuff at the draft. But, you know, he can shoot it. He can defend ones and twos. All of a sudden, you've got, you know, a 6-6 combo there at one and two, which is something you and I have touched on quite a lot with Devin Booker, so having someone that can slide over onto Booker's man if you need him to. And he would be a great secondary playmaker uh, with Devin Booker and kind of be able to share those duties so they're the two kind of prototype players using i guess current nba players that that i came up with as like a, an ideal starting five if if mikhail does make that leap max that's really interesting yeah you went very defense focused which i think makes a lot of sense and i'm sure all of our players are going to be at least adequate defenders but mm-hmm. it seems like in your scenario and correct me if i'm wrong you're really imagining that the offense is going to be coming almost entirely from Booker and Aiton? Because, I mean, I'm not saying those guys are slouches in offense, but really the explosion would be those guys. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it all. I think, you know, the Suns are really gearing themselves up here for for that being their one-two combo. And, you know, I've spoken quite a lot. If Mikhail can make the leap, you know, a, a Booker, Aiton pick and roll with Mikhail on the wing as a secondary guy that can move the ball on or, or hit the open shot if it comes to him. That's kind of the offense that, you know, as simple as that sounds, that's what I'm really looking at. And, and that's why it becomes, you know, really easy in quotation marks here for you to slot in a, a power forward and, and point guard combo with those guys. Yeah, it makes sense to me. All right, Cole, how about you? Uh, I would clone LeBron twice. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I, I took this, I, my players are a little bit more high pedigree, more established, not like 
Michael Jordan, of course, but just conceptually, I think it'll make sure. sense. I also had an alternate option for like a modern player, but uh, I had Chris Paul as my point guard. I think mm-hmm. he, what he brings as far as initiation ability, ability to make high level decisions, dribble, pass, shoot, can shoot off the dribble and also as a knockdown off the catch shooter. So book can initiate as well. And then of course, Paul's like an all time kind of point of attack defender. And he can really switch one of the best six foot guard switch defenders I think we've ever seen. So I think he makes a lot of sense. And then on both iterations of these scenarios, I had Draymond Green. I know Mm. the issues with his shooting are apparent, not ideal as far as that ability, but Best team defender, one of the best team defenders of all time, can quarterback the defense, really help Aiton as far as competitive fire and keeping him engaged. I I love that fit there. And I think the Suns in that scenario would have enough shooting where you could utilize Draymond to like pick out shooters. You can utilize him to pick out Aiton. So I think the the scheme fit there would be ideal. And then I just threw in another guard right right now, someone like Drew Holiday, I think. Obviously not the offensive player that Chris Paul is, but conceptually, you know, multi-positional defender can shoot off the dribble a little bit and, and play off the ball as well. So I think that setting that defensive tone, I thought that was the, the key for me was getting that defense. But of course, I mean, you can have a player like Chris Paul, who's an all-time decision maker. And that's another thing is but all of these guys are just really high level IQ guys. So that, that was big for me. I refuse to pick Drew Holiday. First of all, I thought David was going to. And second of all, we talk about him like all the time on this podcast is a great booker fit. So I figured someone would. So I am glad you brought him up. Uh, real quick before I give mine, Cole, I just want to ask you. So, I mean, obviously, Chris Paul is just a you know Hall of Fame amazing player, so I understand why you'd pick him. But is the fact that you picked him at all indicative of how you feel about Devin Booker's potential to be a primary initiator? Do you think that you would have to have somebody like Chris Paul or even Drew Holiday who can be a point guard in his own right? Or do you think you can get away with a non-traditional point guard guard who can maybe make some plays, but is you know you're still relying on Booker to be your primary? I think Booker has outs to be that guy. Maybe not to the extent of Harden, mm. but like a very good player. We, we talked about it in the past. I'm definitely pro give De- Devin Booker the basketball. I kind of think he has to be that player to, to reach that ceiling. I just, in this exercise, why not give him another player that can do that stuff and then also play off of him? So I think that's key. You want as many perimeter playmakers who can initiate offense, make decisions as possible in the modern game. So I don't think you can go wrong getting more of those guys. But I'm a little, I'm at least curious to see what, Booker's ceiling there is like I'm not saying he can be that player but I'm not as low on him not reaching that as some are some people don't think he has that in his range of outcomes I think it's a really high outcome but I think it's possible yeah and for me so I I guess I'm sort of trying to marry both worlds here because I really want somebody with Booker who can also explode I don't think that even if the Suns even if Aiton really pans out and Booker gets to where he's going to be I still think we need another guy who has explosive scoring ability so I landed on Ray Allen as somebody I think I'd really like with, with Devin Booker. Um, the three-point shooting is obviously great. In his prime, he was really explosive. I know uh, our younger listeners probably will only remember Boston Celtics, Miami Heat, Ray Allen. But Ray Allen early on was – he. I mean, he won a dunk contest, I think. Didn't he? Or at least was in one. Uh, and he was – yeah, he was a he was a lightning kind of player. So I, that's the kind of guy I want with Booker. And the defense, I mean, he's not an excellent defender, but not a bad one. I think that you can make it work since both guys have size. And, uh, and then Bradley Buell is sort of my current day backup. I think Bradley Buell and Ray Allen are kind of similar in a lot of ways. Um, and I'm, I'm very high in the pick between those guys. And then for my power four, I went with Andre Karolenko. Uh, I almost said Brandon Clark. I, I thought, you know, maybe I, should, <laughs> maybe, maybe I should go with somebody who actually was like a Hall of Fame level player. He won't make the Hall of Fame, but Andre Karolenko was that level of player. Uh, not uh, like similar to Cole and Draymond. Can't shoot really, which is a, a problem with Aiton and not the total ideal, but just having Karolenko be the guy who's, you know, protecting uh, Aiton and being Aiton protector, I think would be 
would be really nice. I think that would help a lot. I love the AK-47 reference there. That's that's a big one. I, that didn't cross my mind, but that, that was a, a huge one for me, Max. And uh, I loved Cole mentioning, you know, competitive fire with Draymond. I almost went with Draymond but thought, you know, it would be cheating. So uh, I guess I'm calling Cole a cheater here. But, uh, <laughs> it, you know, that competitive fire, massive reason why I loved the Kelly Oubre edition, uh, massive reason why I probably still start him at the moment with the Suns. Uh, and, you know, I think a massive reason why both Kelly, uh, I guess with the general NBA fan and Tyler, even with Suns fans, Max, is massively underrated as guys that were brought in because, you know, they're guys that bring that competitive fire. We saw it in action for the Suns last year on that mini run. But, you know, I, I just wanted to touch on that, Max, because I thought it was uh, worth hitting on. But, you know, on the back of that exercise, Max, we should maybe just touch on Mikhail a little bit more in terms of uh, if he can become that um, player and, and whether it's possible next year, perhaps. Sure. Let's go to you, Cole. So, yeah, we you talked about the 90 percentile outcome for Mikhail Bridges. We're probably thinking more of his prime, but what do you, what would you, what, let's, let's phrase it this way. What are you looking to see from him? Like what would make you really excited beyond what you already are for Mikhail Bridges if you saw him in his first like five games? I mean, outside of the shooting, of course, being more consistent mechanically, I would say amping up the aggression level. I think sometimes yeah. he's a little bit too passive and he's very team. Like he, like I think David said this best. He doesn't give a shit sometimes about like him scoring points. Like he's just, he's there to make the right choices. He's there for the team. But I think sometimes he can put a little bit more pressure on defenses as a self creator, attacking closeouts and, and stuff like that. So I would like to see him maybe show being wired a little bit more towards getting his own offense at times. But I think a lot of that, again, is tied up in how he's utilized. Like, what's his role? Mm-hmm. If he's just going to space from the corner, it's going to be harder for him to show that kind of stuff. So outside of, like, the, the strength addition, if he can add any kind of functional strength, and we see that in defense on in space against bigger guys, I would, I would say maybe just the aggression level. This is somewhat related. What do you think about him as the two with Booker at the one in certain lineups? Do you think that could possibly work? Because that would really make the Suns look more versatile in terms of who they can play. Yeah, that was always my idea for Mikhail. Honestly, entering the draft, I always viewed him at that position because he's not as strong to check these bigger kind of wing types. Like, he's not going to guard Kawhi that effectively as mm-hmm. far as, like, ch- taking chest bumps. He can still do it okay because of his length and he's really good with his hands. But I always saw him more as, like, a two-guard if you could prepare him, like, in between two kind of creators. So, in theory, if Phoenix had, like, Paul George, who's a shot maker, like, you can play him at the three. Like, that that was kind of my idea for Mikhail optimally but I, I do think he can play the two i think that he maybe not he's not going to initiate your offense you have to utilize him in a specific way i don't think you're going to see him in a ton of pick and roll even though i would like to see that a little bit more just because again he can shoot off the dribble and you, you can make guys you know trace over the top maybe create bigger alleys to drive in so i would like to see maybe his diversity and play type expand a little bit more yeah, I think it would really help this roster because they have a bit of a log jam right now and they have some guys who presumably are going to play, but it's kind of hard to figure out where they're going to play. And that leads us right into Cam Johnson, the number 11 overall pick uh, for the Phoenix Suns this season. Cole, I've heard you on uh, Calwin's pod when it happened. Uh, give your opinion. For those who haven't heard you, give your opinion on Cam Johnson. Could you run down kind of how you feel about him both in a vacuum and then also on the Phoenix Suns? 
Yeah, I mean, he has an NBA scale. He was the best shooter in the class, the best movement shooter in the class. He can come off a pin down floppy set, can barely set his feet, turn in midair, and hit threes from NBA range. You saw it against DeAndre Hunter. There aren't a lot of guys in college basketball that can do that. It's a really underrated skill as far as diversity of shot-making ability. He's got elite mm-hmm. touch. So right away, he's going to be able to fill a role. You can get him on the floor. He's going to space. You have to actually pay attention to him. He has shooting gravity. That's really important. He's not a fake shooter real shooter, smart player. I think he's a little bit underrated as far as his intelligence as a team defender. He's usually in the right positions. Um, he's a little bit better of a passer than he gets credit for. Not like the same as like a Kevin Herter type, who's just is a better functional athlete. So you see that appear more. But Herter was really underrated coming into the draft as a passer. He can come off a pin down curl and hit a skip pass. I think Johnson has that kind of ability. So smart player can shoot. And I think on the Suns, they need shooters. And that's a pretty direct directive i should say from james jones here you see a lot of his draft emphasis has been on and free agency emphasis has been on acquiring shooters so cam johnson can definitely do that yeah he definitely can it's just gonna be a matter of finding him minutes so we'll start with david go to cole david if cam johnson's playing 15 to 20 minutes a game next season how in what way is he playing those minutes where is he it's a good question. I think if we're, you know, talking the traditional sense, small forward is where he should be played long term. You know, you then look at the rotation. You know, we've discussed it quite a bit here. Does Cali play more at power forward, which you know allows Bridges to start at small forward, and therefore there be some more backup minutes for Cam Johnson at the three? Maybe that's a situation that plays out. But you know, I think particularly early on in his career, you kind of lose the advantage of Cam Johnson by playing him at the two or the four, just because, you know, athletically he is limited a little bit, even though I think he's a little bit underrated in that sense. But, you know, and at six, nine, playing him at the four, he's essentially got no advantage on mismatches there. So, you know, I'd be trying to find him minutes at the three where he becomes, you know, a bit of a nightmare matchup problem in certain lineups. And as I said, I think he's a bit underrated, particularly when he gets switched onto bigs uh, and can kind of, uh, you know, use his IQ and, and he knows his game as well, as as Cole said. You know, he can drive, he can hit the open man. Uh, and maybe with some bulk and, um, you know, going into the future, he can play a bit more full-time at the four. But, you know, I think if we see minutes from him next year, it should be at the three. Cole, what do you think? Yeah, I think the same. I, I do think he can kind of play the role that McHale can on offense. Obviously, he's not as good of a defensive player as McHale is, but you can utilize him more as that low usage. And even he's a more diverse shooter than McHale. He's just a better movement guy. So I like playing yeah. him next to two other ball handlers. So in the Suns case, I mean, if it's Tyler Johnson in the backup unit, if he plays next to, you know, Kelly Oubre, who comes in at that time, I think that's a nice fit for him when he can just kind of play off of guys who can dribble, pass, and shoot more. And he's not going to be that guy. If you're relying on him to run a pick and roll or isolation scoring, is just out of the question. He's not going to slash and be dynamic there. So I, I like him filling that more tertiary role, and I think he can do that. I think, again, that's why I kind of like Mikhail with the starters uh, and then Cameron Johnson playing that role off the bench. I think he can thrive there. All right. These are not small forwards, but I'd be remiss if we didn't ask Cole about the other young guys on the Suns roster they just added. Cole, what is your take on Ty Jerome? Because I'm in love with him. I think he's amazing. I, <laughs> I, I understand there's a chance that the athleticism and the you know the size, the wingspan thing is just it's just not tenable and you just can't play. But if if he passes that athletic threshold, if he can play in the NBA, just the level of decision making he brings and the shooting, I think there's a he could be a really, really nice piece for this roster, in my opinion. 
Yeah, that's the entire question about Ty Jerome is, does he clear the athleticism threshold functionally Mm -hmm. at at the NBA level? I mean, he's really, really good at basketball. I don't need to tell listeners that. If you watched him a lot at Virginia, incredible decision maker. And I think he's probably the best pure like pick and roll read guy in this class. Like obviously Moran is way more athletic, but I think as far as decision making, he's really good there. That's never going to be the question with him. He's incredibly skilled, can shoot off the catch, can shoot off motion as well. He's not just a stationary guy. He can do some things. Gus, he has really good touch. Um, You see that on runners, but can he get to the rim at all if he's playing on the ball? That's a big question for me. Can he create separation? Can he guard anybody in space on a switch? Um, He couldn't stay in front of R.J. Barrett at all. It was like he would get knocked off balance. And R.J. is not like the most dynamic NBA athlete. Very strong, but if if you can't really slide with him, that's kind of an issue. So that's my entire issue. I was lower on Ty Jerome just based on the athleticism, the IQ and the skill level that he has. Honestly, in a six-foot-six guy is really rare. David, what was it that uh, James Jones said about Ty Jerome that he's like the best pure point guard in the class? I'm like that. Cole is saying similar things here. <laughs> the best uh, lead initiator, I think it was, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Turning to the other guy who is very, very different than Ty Jerome, and I'm not sure how much of him you've seen, but Jalen LeCue, the son signed to a four-year deal after the draft as an undrafted free agent. I had very low expectations for him. I think most of us did just because of where he came from. But watching him in summer league, it was very much not what I expected to see. You know, the athleticism flashed, but he also made really good decisions, especially for a player of his age. Have you seen much of him, Cole? And if you have, what do you think? I have. I watched him at the combine and I watched him in summer league. I had this similar thought. I mean, I came out with, with pretty low expectation. Like this is just this run and jump athlete. And he showed better decision-making. I loved his, his physicality, his busy, his ability to finish through contact at the rim. I really enjoyed like a tough kind of physical player. And some of the passes he made were, were pretty legit. Honestly, mm-hmm. I, who knows if that's going to, how that translates to the NBA as far as making NBA reads on the fly. But I think it can only be a promising sign. The entire issue with him is just the shooting ability and it's yeah. the confidence to shoot. I think summer league, he showed a little bit better at the combine it was much worse like he was getting sag off coverage by like 10 feet and he wasn't taking threes and that was kind Mm -hmm. of an issue and i was like okay well if he's not going to shoot at all like that's just not you're not gonna be able to get on the floor so it's i think his upside is all tied to that like how does that shooting like both the consistency as far as mechanics and then also that mental approach is he actually going to take you know open shots because i don't think anybody's going to guard him initially he's going to need to do that yeah, he's going to have to prove he can do it. He's a, he's a good candidate for the G League to play in there for a while. But, man, if he does learn how to shoot, if he can shoot just at an average level with the decision-making I saw from him and just just the give-a-fuckness to him, too, I, that matters so much to me. He took charges, Cole. He's a 19-year-old in summer league. <laughs> that is not super common, is it? Uh, no, not really. I mean, you see it from some guys, but I, I, I was impressed by that. Honestly, I think the toughness and the physicality, again, really stood out for me. Not just the, the strength through contact, but just that ability to be physical at times was, uh, was pretty impressive. There you go, guys. Cole Zwicker, sometimes high on Suns players. Uh, David, <laughs> anything else before seven seconds or less, or should we move on? Uh, I feel like we've maybe buried the lead a little bit here that we could touch on a little bit while we've got Cole sure. on a Mikhail Bridges pod. But, you know, the shot. We need to talk about the shot a little okay. bit more, I think. It, it was touched on a little bit, but 33.5% on 3.8 attempts last season. He had 25 games without a made three. He had games of 0 of 7, 0 of 6, 0 of 5, guys. We all saw the kind of mechanics issue. I even studied it a little bit in January, and in that 10 games, he was kind of 
24% on slow, hitchy shots that I identified and 41% on quick kind of straightaway reaction shots. So, you know, for me, I'm going to put it on, you know, I think he's going to return this season as kind of a 38 plus percent shooter, which is going to go a long way to him really making that leap in his second season. You know, just looking again at more stats when he was open, which I think is, you know, three to six feet, he was 40%. And when he was wide open, he was 31 so I just think it was that me- that mechanics we saw that that playing around with the shot that really came into effect when he was wide open and thought about things too much. He's just too good of a shooter when he's you know reacting straight away and shooting off curls and things. So uh, I'll throw it to you guys before I've got one last thing to throw to as well, Max. But you know, what's your prediction? Are we going to see a much better shooter this year from Mikael Bridges? I'll just briefly say that you stole my point that I wanted to make, uh, which is that it was all about uh, when he when he didn't have to think about it when he wasn't wide open he shot much better when he I was dribbling a little bit into it or you know off the cat off the movement uh, sort of shooting he was he was looked like Mikel from Villanova when he was wide open in the corners he was doing this stupid little hesitation thing that everyone told me when I got upset about it uh, in the summer before that he was just practicing and not to worry about it they started doing the <laughs> game so you know don't tell me not to worry about things. I'll double down on that, Max. Something else that I found very early in the shot clock, so 22 to 18 seconds, he was 41.2%. And very late in the shot clock, four seconds to zero seconds, he was 44% from three. So the, all the he, all the kind of evidence is there is when he's not thinking too much about this shot, it's going in at a really good clip. But what do you think, Cole? Are we, are we going to see a better shooter next season? If we don't, I'm going to renounce all my possessions and move to a different country <laughs> because I will be, it'll be the most confounding thing. Honestly, one of the most confounding things I've ever seen. Like, again, we're talking about a college shooter that was one of the best shooters for being an also two-way player that I've seen. He's elite touch. You see that on length extension finishes at the rim. That's probably something we should have mentioned about like the yeah. creation. He can really extend around the basket, which is really, really promising. But uh, yeah, I mean, he, what, he, was, he was like the worst corner three-point shooter in the league last year on volume it's like i would have never guessed that that would have been literally i would have never predicted that so i there has to be positive regression here as far as the shooting ability he's just too good of a shooter so you guys touched on it when he gets right into his shot and you see more of the nova type where he can even come off a down screen and just shoot right over the top of guys i don't know why he's slowing it down like like you noted Max in the preseason, it was kind of like, okay, he's, he's doing this for a purpose to translate on the floor, but he was still doing it on the floor. It's yeah. like, it wasn't just a practice thing. And that's why I tweeted about it like 50 times last year. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, so like if we don't, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's an easy fix for me. It's like the guy's elite touch. He's always been a great shooter. For some reason, he didn't do the things that he usually does last year. And I would expect that to stop. Yeah, I don't know who the hell his shooting coach is, but that guy should never work again in anything because <laughs> it makes no sense to me to break down a shot like that. Uh, no, maybe ridiculous. Maybe it was Igor Kokoskov, and that's why he was fired, Max. <laughs> that's don't, why don't do this to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was just going to say before we throw it to David, I think David has one last thing, and I, not to bring up another sore subject, Cole, but it's sort of like a mini version of Markel Fultz. It's like, wh- why are you destroying yourself? You were so good. You're like, what? shooting was like your number one thing coming into the league. And what, what are you doing messing with it? Oh man, that was, that was a low blow. <laughs> I know, sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I was thinking about Markel the other day, just because if he comes good, I'm going to run everybody down. who's was giving him shit for the last two years. Like he was but never then, any good and stuff. It was going to be fun, but uh, yeah. yeah. Also, it can't hurt you as much Cole when it's like the unanimous opinion. Who didn't have Markel Fultz number one? It was almost <laughs> everybody. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's just more like I I really like the kid and I wanted mm-hmm. to see to see him to succeed. And, and when th- when players do things that I just don't understand, like tweak their mechanics, like Jacob Evans did this too, much lesser prospect than both of these guys, but he kind of modifies his technique. And it's like you need to shoot, like especially yeah. the shooting guys. Like Mikhail has to shoot. If he doesn't shoot, and I, he's going to. By the way, I'm very very confident in this. It's just like it, sometimes players and coaches and developmental guys just they do things that are just befuddling. Yeah. Well, the sad part is a lot of these kids, they're, you know, they're kids. They're 18, they're 19, they're 20. Yep. They're, they must just be getting bad advice. That's, that's all I can really think about it. Yeah, I'm in a, a, a Mikael Bridges pod. I've got to get the, a couple of my predictions down here. So I said it, you know, 38% from Mikael next year from three, I reckon. I think that's that's seriously going to come back from everything that I can see in the stats, Max. And, uh, you know, one last prediction I want to put out there. I just think... You know, I made this point last week. Every time I go back and punish myself watching Suns games from, from last season, you know, I'm watching for other reasons, and, and Mikel just keeps standing out. So I see some serious upside there to you know add on to the 3 and D prototype. Hopefully the 3 comes back. I'm certainly predicting it to do so. I think we all are. But you know, I, I had a quick look at it. I like to look at you know game highs with you know what we can maybe expect coming back into another season with these young guys and you know in assist games he had eight seven five three times and four assists 13 times last year and free throw attempts he had an eight two sixes two fives and four seven times and i kind of wanted to look at dates around those and most of those highs in both categories came kind of from February onwards, which I think is of note. They, they really started to let him do a little bit more as the team, you know, was dropping like flies and, and Mikel was lent on a little bit more. He played 34 minutes post-February, had 9.3 points, 2.2 free throw attempts, three assists to one turnover, and still kept the 1.8 steals there. So, you know, I'm really expecting a leap based on kind of that February onwards stuff that we saw from Mikel. And I love that Cole mentioned his kind of extension at the rim. There's a almost dunk on Andre Drummond, which stands out the most to me last season. I guess I'll throw you guys one last question here around that sort of a thing. What's what's the most likely third skill that we might see Mikel pop in his second season? Cole, I'll throw to you first. I'm going to say pull-up shooting. I'm going to say that he gets utilized. I watched that back on Synergy, and he actually had some really promising – like, he had some really promising flashes, which was the same as Nova. Like, he could do that yeah. in more of a vacuum. I just want to – that's more about how he's utilized, though. But I do think we'll see a little bit more of him on the ball shooting over the top of guys. At least I hope so. I'll go with finishing at the rim. I think for – well, first of all, he's going to get a lot more opportunities. He's going to have better players around him to set him up better. But also, yes. the, the thing about Mikel Bridges, too, it, it, I mean, you can obviously see that on TV, but if you see him in person, it's even more obvious. His arms are just freakish. They're ridiculous. It, it's insane how long his arms are. They, they stand out to you in person. And there's, there's a reason why he finished well around the rim and why I think he's going to continue just getting better there. It's, it's because of the length extensions we've talked about. Uh, I think that when he's put in positions to do that more often, it's going to be a, a real weapon. Can I amend my answer? Yes. I'm going to say finishing as well, because another point we should have made is he's an excellent cutter. Like he's yeah, very good at yeah. identifying gaps. And I think with Rubio, for example, he's going to be able to hit him better. So maybe you'll see the finishing in more dynamic fashion. I, I just think that's a, a more bankable second year skill than, than pull up shooting, which is more situation based. I think he's gonna be able to cut and you'll see that, that touch on the move and that extension around guys. But Cole, that sounds like the Rubio signing will be beneficial in some way. I, the, executive, <laughs> the executives have told me that it's one of the, one of the worst moves of the off season. <laughs> 
I think my favorite argument is like the Suns don't have a plan. It's like they have a plan. I know. You, it might not be good. I'm not sure if it's good or not, but it's at least something, right? Like it's a very direct as far as getting shooting, getting a veteran ball handler. And that's the part that I think a lot of fans, a lot of Phoenix fans lose faith in like the national coverage is when you say shit like that. It doesn't make any sense. Like I'm not sure if the plan's good, but you, you have to at least acknowledge a, a process and a plan being made. Cole, you are preaching to the chorus, man. I've said that over and over and over. <laughs> Their plan is blindingly obvious. You can say you disagree with it, but to say they don't have a plan means you're not paying attention. That's <laughs> the most obvious plan ever. It was very late in the episode, Max, but we got at least one reference into the uh, bad criticism of the Phoenix Suns offseason uh, in this episode, which is becoming uh, – a feature of the pod, I should say. It's impossible not to talk about. My favorite one was the one David uh, quote treated from. It was one of those aggregator websites. I don't know if you saw this, Cole. It was some executive being like, yeah, I didn't. I don't understand what the Suns are doing. Like, they did blah, blah, blah. This is all the moves. And, he goes, and at the end, he goes, well, I mean, they're going to be much better this year, I guess. <laughs> I, I still don't understand what they're doing. <laughs> what? That's a <laughs> winning comment right better. there. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, let's go ahead and move on to seven seconds or less. Uh, this is a segment where we all have prepared questions for each other. We're doing the same thing we did with Kellen. That was a resounding success. So each of us is going to ask one question of the other two uh, for which the other has not prepared and only has seven seconds or less to answer. Cole, you're the guest. We're going to let you go first. Okay, so I'm going to actually give context after I ask the question so it's not leading. So okay. I'm going to ask kind of a difficult question because it's three years in advance. Predict Mikhail's second contract amount, years and money annually. Wow. That's really interesting. I can go first on this one. He's going to be underpaid, I think. And I actually got into a – this is going to be more than seven seconds. Sorry. I talked with uh, a common <laughs> creeper on Twitter about this a little bit, how Mikhail's actually kind of the perfect guy you want with – Aiden and Booker, not only from a skill set uh, standpoint, but from a contract standpoint, because he's going to be underpaid and Aiden's probably going to be overpaid. Uh, I think he'll probably get something like four years, 60, and it'll be a complete steal, and I'll be very happy about it. David? Yeah, I, I, I'd probably double down on that roughly. Cole, I love the leading reference that you gave in asking your question too, not <laughs> not, le not letting you away with that one. But, uh, yeah, I think if you can extend him – I guess, prior to that summer, I've actually thought about this quite a lot, you know, with what, you know, Aiton getting his big contract, presumably at the same time, it is actually going to be a, you know, a bit of a cap gymnastics thing for the Suns to, to work around. But uh, oh, I'll go a little higher. I'll go 470. I would probably even be happy with if Mikhail turns out to be the guy that I expect him to be. Yeah, I mean, both quality answers. I, I was just curious because I'm writing a piece about like valuing bigger wing types and kind of the inefficiencies and if we project moving forward, like what kind of players are undervalued. And I think Mikhail yeah. in most circumstances would absolutely be, and he still has a chance to be. The thing with him, though, is like the pedigree is just so strong. Like mm -hmm. no, he was one of the best college basketball players or like the last five years. He was on one of the best college basketball teams in the last decade. And, you know, you already you see him playing like USA scrimmages. Like everybody knows he's a winner. You know what I mean? Like that's his thing. Yeah. And he is. But like he's so identified with that. And he has such a strong pedigree. If he was from like some random college, like even a lesser scale, it never won the title. And he wasn't he didn't have this narrative behind him. I would say 100 yeah. percent lock him in as being underrated. I just think that just that high pedigree, even for his skill set, it, it, it could lead to maybe getting paid what he's worth. But I, I go back and forth with that. He's such an interesting test case because I totally agree with you. He has all that pedigree stuff. 
He also, the Suns invested a crap load to get him. They had to trade yes. that Miami pick to get him. Um, but at the same time, he's probably never going to, or maybe not never, but not going to average 15 points per game before he gets to a second contract. And those guys just don't generally get paid. So it's going to be really interesting to see what he ends up with. I think it's a really good question. Yeah, I just think, you know, with what, everything that we've talked about, if he, he, if you know, Booker and Aiton do end up being the players that the Suns expect him to be, he is probably the prime example of a guy who's going to be, you know, much more valued by uh, the team that he's on, maybe even than the market that's out there, because the Suns are just going to see this guy as a, a great third piece, uh, as we've said multiple times this pod just doesn't give a shit doesn't have an ego you know and basically the the best third piece that you can think of you know all out positive outcomes being considered next to you know guys like booker and ayton so i could see them paying uh you know through the tooth for that and i think the league is starting to shift to valuing that stuff a lot more too and actually paying these guys rather than moving them on and trying to find the next three and D type, because I think the league's realizing uh, they're pretty rare. Yeah. And I think what's kind of spawned this overall question for me was thinking about DeAndre Hunter in the draft, as far as Atlanta trading up for him and taking him in the top four. I think that reduced a lot of his value because now he has that established pedigree, both winning title in college, but then you invested a lot of capital in him. And this is the point that Max made with Mikhail, but to a lesser extent, when you trade up and you take someone like that, who's not a star caliber player, I, I just think you're inflating their value. You get like an auto Porter situation who I love, but you take him number three and he gets maxed out because he's a bigger wing. So I just think it's kind of fascinating to think about. I, I feel it as kind of like a bigger wing epidemic. Like Harrison Barnes gets 23 million a year because he can guard bigger players, but he's not very good at it. So like where do you <laughs> carve out efficiency when it comes to those guys? So it's really fascinating with Mikhail, but I do think he's going to be properly valued potentially just because again, the strong pedigree and Max's point was great as far as trading up and investing capital. I think that he's viewed as kind of that number three guy. God, that Atlanta trade was so stupid. I don't know if you probably ripped into that in this podcast yet. Really, really, really bad. Atlanta gets a lot of uh, credit and a lot of love because they, you know, Trey Young's awesome. They really, uh, it looked good a lot. Kevin Herter was great, but I think they screwed this offseason up so badly. They did. And I was killing that trade the night of just like from a value standpoint, sacrificing picks and and basically guaranteeing that you're going to overpay this guy when you're probably going to have to max out John Collins. It was it was a rough go for Atlanta. I thought this offseason, it's kind of a bummer. This is not my question, but uh, impromptu question. Would you rather have Nikhil Alexander Walker or would you rather have DeAndre Hunter on your team? <laughs> That's really fascinating. I, I have to see Nikhil's athleticism against NBA athletes. That was it's, it's like the supersized version of Ty Jerome there. Like he's craftier than yeah. Jerome, but you got to see him be able to create against, you know, bigger, better players. The skill level is incredible, though. But I, I think from an investment standpoint now, you could easily talk me into Nikhil because he's going to be underrated based on pedigree, whereas there's no way DeAndre Hunter is going to. The fact it's even a question is just sad for Atlanta. Uh, <laughs> David, you want to go to yours? Yeah, I love when these kind of things play out this way. I think tying back to the theme from Did You Know and you know, also from the theme from Cole's first question, I think probably my favorite non-star player growing up as a small forward was from the Sonics, and it was none other than Detlef Schrempf, oh. who I absolutely loved. And I even remember wanting my Gary Payton Sonics jersey as like a five-year-old to be a Detlef one instead. But <laughs> in, in, in Australia, you kind of got like three or four choices for jerseys at the at the sports outlet. So I was stuck with Gary Payton. But uh, So the question, what small forward from the past or present who is a non-star was one of your favorite players? Oof. 
I got to think about that one. I will, first of all, I'll say Gary Payton was my favorite player in the entire league for a stretch, so I would have gladly taken that off your hands, David. <laughs> love seeing him on some big three stuff too. Here's my answer. Uh, I, I can, just love Gary Payton. Oh, he's the best. He's great. Uh, my answer is going to be late career Suns Grant Hill. Not, not a yes. star, but just awesome. Loved him so much. Obviously a star early in his career, but at that point he wasn't, but he was still just so great. Severely underrated too. I think we're yes. all just waiting for him to break down. So no one really wanted to go all in on him or, you know, have great proclamations of him as a player. But looking back on it now, yeah, he was great in a son's uniform. He Cole, was, what about you? I, hold on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make Cole mad real quick and say that Grant Hill <laughs> oh, at, that, at that period was just as good as Andre Iguodala has been for the Warriors right now. Just Andre has been on a better team. Ooh. That was going to be my goddamn answer. It was Iguodala. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, that's great. You guys should change this, the name of this podcast, by the way, to like Sonic Skate or something. I mean, that's why I like you guys so much. You guys are both closet Gary Payton and Sonics fans. But uh, yeah, my guy's Iguodala. I, I think that early career, he was like miscast as the number one in Philadelphia, even at times at Denver. And then going to the Warriors, which is one of my favorite players. I think he's a Hall of Famer. I, his defense, his team defense, like just everything is decision making, everything I want in like a, a role player. And he's just, again, one of the most likable guys to me. Yeah, he's amazing. If Mikel Bridges turns into that, we'll be very, very lucky. Uh, and on that note, uh, my, my question is, Cole, the player you described as your 90% plus outcome from Mikel Bridges, uh, say he gets there, would you rather have that guy or Devin Booker? Oh, man, that's really tough. This, this again, touches on the theme of like what contributes to winning. Mm-hmm. I, you, you just can't really get to that point without someone like Devin Booker. You know what I mean? Like, if Mikhail is that guy, it, I would have to see the context. Like, would he fit better around like two bona fide top eight guys? Yeah. But if you don't have those guys, it's completely context dependent. So I, I can't really give a straight answer for this, honestly. It, it's really tough. But I guess in a, in a vacuum, maybe Devin Booker. David? Yeah, I'm taking Devin Booker, but it, it is an interesting question. I even, you know, I hope Suns fans don't come at me, but I've watching some games, particularly ones without Devin Booker. You know, I did have the thought of if, you know, DeAndre Ayton becomes a star in the league and Mikael Bridges, you know, does hit that 90% outcome, you know, kind of what that looks like within a return that you get for Devin Booker if he asks out. But uh, before everyone starts jumping on Twitter and going at me, my answer is Devin Booker to the question. Yeah, I think it's the upside thing, right? Like Devin Booker, we, I mean, we went crazy with him, with Kellen Olsen on our podcast, but he really does have the potential to be the best scorer in the league at some point. And, yep. you know, even if he has the, uh, the the chances to also be the high volume, not that great of a guy on a winning team thing, you got to go with him just for the upside. And just but, to reiterate really quick, I, wanna, I just yeah. want to make sure that that was David who made that comment. That was not me who said any of that. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> Cole Zucker, would you rather have a Luka Doncic or DeAndre Ayton? Just kidding. We're not, we're not going to do Oh, Jesus. Uh, Cole, thank you so much for taking the time to come on, man. Uh, please promote anything you want. What do you got coming up? Yeah, I'm just kind of cycling through draft prospects right now, so I'll kind of maybe do write-ups. I've, I've done some along the way. I wrote a 44-minute piece on Isaiah Joe, who's a returning sophomore, who isn't even the top 30 prospects. So that was <laughs> an all-time low for me. Um, but I'm going through guys like that, uh, 2020 draft, and then I'm even working forward. We've got some really good prospects. Like You guys have to watch Cade Cunningham if you can. You're going to love oh, him. Oh, I've seen Six- some of him. He's incredible. Yeah, he, he's like literally – I watch prospect tape, and – He'll be playing other prospects. And I don't give a shit about anybody else. I'll start watching him, and it's like the worst because I never get anything done. But uh, on the step in, I'll have some. Like I noted a piece just now about um, wing value and kind of how you assess that in the draft as far as considering contracts. And as usual, you can listen to me on the Game Theory podcast with Sam Bassini. 
Cole, maybe your answer to the uh, what guard would you want with the Booker Eight and Mikel show should have been Cade Cunningham. You may have messed up on that one. <laughs> that's that's absolutely the answer, by the way. And don't kill me, guys. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's supposed to be like a six seven to Chris Paul, right? That's what I've heard. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, as far as we go, please, as always, rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow me at MaximCC11. Follow David at The Four Point Play. Also, let us know if you experience any issues with this episode. We switched podcast platforms and just want to make sure everything's still working smoothly. David, anything else? No, I was going to mention that too, but in the spirit of loving feedback, Max, I think we're at 82 five stars now in the US. So I'm aiming for 100 before the season starts. So if you haven't already, jump on and and give us a rating and a review. We love to read those. Uh, And my Australian listeners, I need to know just how many of you are out there. And the easiest way of doing that is to to jump on and and rate us on iTunes as well, because it isolates itself on the Australian iTunes for me. So uh, yeah, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks again to Cole. I'm going to need some Josh Green uh, thoughts at some point from you as well. We may have to get you back at some point for some draft stuff too. But thanks for coming on. Always love having you on the pod. Anytime, guys. Thanks, everybody.